Thank you, Evan. It's good to be with you all this morning, those who are here in the sanctuary, those who are on the lawn, and those who are joining us via the live stream. Welcome to Christ Central Church. As Evan said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. And once again, I want to say I'm so glad that you decided to join us this morning. Today we are launching a new sermon series here at Christ Central entitled One Another. And in this series, we will be spending the next six weeks looking at what the Bible has to say about community, about life together. And the question is why? Why now? Why in this particular moment have we, Christ Central Church, decided to take on this topic? answer may be obvious to, to many of you, but the reality is that this pandemic that we are in has forced us into an unprecedented season of isolation. No doubt we praise God for technology, for Zoom and Google Hangouts, for the live stream, but there's no question that these mediums of being together pale in comparison to the real thing. And the good news is that we are, I believe, beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. All this isolation that we have been experiencing may not be required for a whole lot longer. However, church, I feel, or I worry, maybe is better, that through this process we may have become too comfortable in our isolation. I fear that we as a church might conclude on some level that being apart isn't so bad after all. And as a result, that we would continue to embrace some form of isolation long after COVID-19 demands it. And so that is the heart behind this sermon series. It's to combat that ideology that we don't really need one another. And instead to remind us what the Bible says about why and how we must do life together. This time I'm going to invite you, if you're able, as is our custom, to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. I'm actually going to be reading from the, the NIV translation, a little different than what we normally do, but the scripture is printed there for you in the bulletin. This is Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. believe your word is true. And that when we come to your word, we encounter a living God. That this text is God breathed, inspired by you, and Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts through this word this morning. 
Father, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So what's the big deal? Who cares if in the past year we've gotten a little more comfortable in our own little worlds? For the introverts amongst us, me included, although we may not want to admit it, the pandemic at times has been kind of nice. A whole lot of forced me time. Amen, anyone? Am I alone in that? So what's the big deal? Back in 2017, former Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murphy published an article in the Harvard Business Review. And in this article, he began to sound the alarm about an epidemic that he believed was sweeping our nation. Not COVID-19, but what he called the loneliness epidemic. In this article, Murphy begins by reporting that we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, and yet the rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. I told you Zoom was not as good as the real thing. Upon making this discovery, Dr. Murphy began this thorough study of the consequences of the rise in loneliness in America, and he goes on to state, as someone who trained as a doctor, I also found that in medicine, we've, we get very little guidance on how to approach emotional well-being. We don't often screen patients for loneliness. However, when you look at the data, what's really interesting is loneliness has been a found, found to be associated with a reduction of lifespan. The reduction in life for loneliness is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and is greater than the impact on lifespan of obesity. So if you think about how much we put into curbing tobacco use and obesity compared to how much effort and resources we put into addressing loneliness, there's no comparison. Look even deeper and you'll find loneliness is associated with a greater risk of heart disease, depression, anxiety, and dementia. Isn't that fascinating? The former Surgeon General believes that loneliness is more dangerous than both cigarettes and obesity. Don't you love it when science proves something that God had already declared to be true a long time ago? You see, the Bible has been on the anti-loneliness bandwagon since day one. When we look back in the scriptures, starting in Genesis and all the way through to Revelation, God is shouting to us that we need one another. Look at Genesis chapter 1. God says, verse 26, let us make man in our image. So much that's packed in this short little phrase. First of all, we're given our first introduction to the Trinity, that our God is three in one, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in this perfect community with one another. And what the text reveals is that that triune God has created us in His image. Meaning that we, like God, are designed to live in perfect community with one another. However, the Bible does not only reveal this as a design, the Bible also reveals that this one anotherness is something that we will one day obtain in its fullness. The book of Revelation, the end of our Bible, serves as a picture of what is to come. And I want you to listen to what 
The book's Revelation says in chapter 7, this is what the end of the story looks like. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, don't miss this. The place that God says we are heading toward is a place where there are a multitude of people, all different kinds of people, all together in one place, singing with one voice. This is the fulfillment of the command that Paul makes in Romans chapter 15. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, the church, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this command that Paul is making is something that we will experience one day in its fullness. No wonder the former Surgeon General is worried about this loneliness epidemic, and no wonder loneliness wreaks havoc on our bodies and in our lives. It's because God did not intend for us to live that way. He made us to live with one another. Now, the problem is, and we all know this full well, is that doing that, that living with one another, is really stinking hard. Amen? I think I just heard my wife and kids say amen. See, the good news is that our God is aware of how much we struggle to get along, which is why the scriptures are full of instructions on how to do this well. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. We're going to be looking at these six of these instructional passages that speak into the how and the why of living with one another. And the first one is the text that we read today. This instruction comes out of Colossians 3. And, and, and what God is saying here is that in order to live well with one another, we must love one another. So that's our task for today in the next 10 to 15 minutes, we have to answer this question that has plagued humanity since the dawn of creation. Where is the love? And so I want to encourage us to dive in together. And I think one final note before I begin to unpack the text. That Paul is writing in this letter, Colossians, to a specific church. He's writing to a group of believers who are trying to do this life together thing. And I want to encourage you in light of that to listen as such. To not look at this text from an individualistic lens, but rather imagine that Paul is writing to all of us. Not to the church at Colossae, but to Christ's central church. And so that's what Paul has got for us. He's, he's speaking to us about how to love one another. And the first thing that he gives us is not the how, but he begins by pointing out some things that are getting in the way. Paul says there's some barriers that are getting in the way of our ability to love one another. So I want to begin here. What are the barriers that we, Christ Central Church, need to take down so that we can truly love one another? Now, I don't claim that this is an exhaustive list, but Paul reveals what I think are two of the biggest barriers to love. 
two barriers that we need to engage with this morning. Those barriers are pride and unforgiveness. Pride and unforgiveness. Let's look first at pride. Our text begins with the word therefore, meaning that whatever is said is contingent upon something that's already been said. So we need to look at verse 11 to understand this therefore. And if you have your Bible open, you can follow along. But Paul says here, verse 11, meaning in the church, amongst the the people of God, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What's Paul getting at here? Well, what he's doing, he's highlighting for this specific church the four biggest sources of pride that were at play. For the Colossians, these were ethnicity, religiosity, culture, and socioeconomics. If that list doesn't hit close to home, then I don't know what would. Paul begins by naming the ethnic barrier that stemmed from the pride that Jews had over the Gentiles, believing that their ethnicity made them better than everyone else. And then he names this religious barrier that stemmed from the pride that those who were circumcised had over those who were not circumcised, believing that this proved that they loved God more than those who failed to obey in this way. He names the cultural barrier that stemmed from the pride the civilized cosmopolitan folk had over the uncivilized barbarian and Scythians. And then this last barrier Paul names, which is easy to misunderstand because when we hear the word slavery, we think something that is racial. However, in the ancient Near East, slavery was purely economic. To be a slave was to be extremely poor, to be bankrupt. And so Paul here is actually engaging a socioeconomic barrier that stems from the pride that the wealthy had over the poor. It was these four barriers, ethnicity, religion, money, and culture, excuse me, that were hindering the church in Colossae from loving one another. But what is it that's getting in the way of us? Because obviously we're a different place. We're a different church. What is getting in the way of Christ's central church from loving one another? If someone were to, like Paul, write a letter to this church, what barriers might they bring up that need to be taken down? Over the past couple months, and I'm a little weary of sharing this, but bear with me in this illustration. The Durham Nativity School, which we now reside in, has cut down a number of trees on the east side of the building. You may have noticed. When they did this, the uh, neighborhood listserv exploded. Um, Lots of chatter. Some of these comments were really strong and judgmental comments were made about the school. I think what's interesting is that the first few days of these flaming arrows flying, there was no understanding on the listserv of why the school did this, why they cut down the trees. However, it didn't matter for many of the neighbors, and they felt the freedom to, regardless of motive, condemn the actions. I know why the school did it. The school had received some funding to build a soccer field that they believe is vital for their institution, and they think it will help mold and shape the young men that they have been given. 
I'm not about to cast my vote on this one, on a sermon that's being recorded, but I bring it up uh, because I think it's a real good picture of what barriers look like in Durham, North Carolina in 2021. You see, they're so often value-based barriers. I want you to just kind of try to put yourself in the people's shoes here. The na- many of the neighbors place great value on 120-year-old trees, and they would be willing to withhold a soccer field from DNS students for the sake of the trees. The administration of the Durham Timothy School really values recreation and sport and believes that it's an essential part of a child's education, and they would be willing to remove some trees for the sake of that value. So who's right and who's wrong? That's a rhetorical question, and the reason I say that is because I think the problem is that we are so quick to ask that question. And I'm not sure that's the right question. We've gotten so comfortable in Durham, North Carolina in 2021 making judgment calls about other people's values. And when someone else's value differs from ours, we feel the freedom to tear them to pieces. I imagine for some of you that the fight around a soccer field and some trees is trivial. But what is it for you? What value are you willing to rake someone over the coals for if they get it wrong? I have no question that if Paul was writing to Christ Central Church in 2021, he would have said, here there is no Republican and no Democrat. How does that sit with you? I bring that issue up specifically because it's a lot like the trees. Many of us have come to believe that this issue is black and white. That If you're a real Christian, you'd vote this way. If you really loved your neighbor, you would support this party. And what concerns me about that and about our church is I wonder how much our love for one another is contingent upon shared values. And I'm not talking about the gospel. Because that is not love. You don't need love to be with someone who's just like you. The Jews despised the Gentiles because they thought they were unclean. And the Gentiles despised the Jews because they thought they were pretentious. The circumcised despised the uncircumcised because they thought they were rebellious and sinful. And and the uncircumcised despised the circumcised because they believed they were self-righteous and they didn't get the gospel. These differences that were at play in the Colossian church, they were not minor. They were not small things. Paul was actually calling people who hated each other to in turn love one another. So how do we do that, church? I really think what this text reveals is that the best way for us to measure the love that we have for one another is by how we speak and feel about those whose values are profoundly different than ours. I want you to ask yourself this question. How is your pride, in terms of your values, hindering you from loving one another? It's not just pride that gets in the way. Paul says it's also unforgiveness. Look again at verse 13. It says, bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. See, not only are there people that have different values than you that God is calling you to love, there are also people who have hurt you and wronged you that God is calling you to love as well. What I find so interesting about this text 
is that in order to cultivate a community where people have love for one another, you would think Paul would encourage us to stop hurting one another. That's the, the logical approach, right? Let's not focus on forgiveness, but let's focus on getting people in church to stop doing things that need to be forgiven. Amen? The problem is that that church, the church that doesn't hurt each other, does not exist. And it will not exist until Christ returns. This past week, a member of this church scheduled a meeting with me for the purpose of forgiving me a wrong that I had done to them. Man, I wish I was telling this story and I was the other person in the story, right? But that's not the case. I had wronged this man. And this man actually had a number of options about what he could do with that. He could have left this church. He could have stayed in this church and talked about me whenever he got the opportunity. But he refused to do either of those options, and instead he moved toward me to forgive me. Why do I share that story? Because you need to know that if we go after this one another thing, you will be hurt. You might even be hurt by me. But the true love exists not in the absence of hurt, but in the presence of forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, do you have a grievance with somebody in this church? I've been in ministry long enough to know that many of you are nodding your heads on the inside. Would you consider moving towards that person in forgiveness? What a gift I received this past week. A tangible expression of how forgiveness cultivates love. May we be a church that gives that gift to one another. Those are the barriers that Paul brings up. Pride, unforgiveness, things that get in the way of love. And so you might assume if we can just get those things out of the way, we'll be good to go. We'll be the most lovey-dovey church there ever was. But there's more. Paul reveals that once the barrier is removed, we need the strength to move forward in love. But where does that strength come from? There's two lines in our text that reveal to us where this power to love resides. Remember how I said the text begins with the therefore, means it, it hinges upon something that's already been said. And we actually need to go all the way back to verse 1 to know what Paul is really getting at. This is what he says in verse 1. He says, since then you, church, have been raised with Christ. A few years ago, one of our staff, Aisha Benton, she went around Durham asking people what a Christian is. Not surprisingly, most people said things like someone who tries to be a good person, someone who participates in church activities, someone who believes certain things. That was kind of the gist of the responses we got. You know what the Bible says a Christian is? The Bible says that a Christian is, verse 1, one who has been raised with Christ. Elsewhere, Paul describes a Christian as one who's been brought from death to life, a new creation. Church, I confess that I struggle to believe this, but the Bible teaches that a Christian is one who has experienced a supernatural transforming work, a work that has resulted in what the Bible calls a resurrection life and resurrection power. So how do you love like this? You don't, because you can't. 
But if the Bible is true and you believe that the resurrected Christ is in you, he can love like that through you. That's the Christian life. You know how I know this is true? Because I've been loved like that before and it smells just like Jesus. There's more. Not only is the resurrection power in us that enables us to love like this, but also there is this active work that Paul encourages us to engage in as well, and that is to remember who we are. Who are we, church? Look again at verse 12 and then verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Who are you? You are the one who has been chosen by God. He picked you. You didn't pick him. What the Bible teaches is that he picked you before the foundation of the world, meaning that he didn't wait to see if you were good enough to choose. He chose you long before you had a chance to prove yourself. And verse 12 goes on to say that he chose you because he loves you. That's who you are, the beloved of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in spite of what you did last week, in spite of what you did last night, in spite of how often you fail to love God, that he loves you? Maybe bigger than all of that in terms of your identity is verse 13. You are forgiven. That's who you are. That's the good news of Easter that we celebrated last week. And as Christians, it's not something we celebrate one day a year, but 365 days a year. And by embracing and resting in that true identity, chosen, beloved, and forgiven, and by drinking in the perfect love of God towards us, we find that strength to love one another. Church, what are the barriers that are getting in the way of us truly loving one another? May we lay down our pride and unforgiveness and drink in the resurrection power and embrace our new identity that we have in Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, On the cross, Jesus Christ, completely embodying perfect love, looked down at the people he was dying for, completely embodying the opposite and stayed. May we drink deeply of that perfect love each and every day, and in turn, may we embody that for one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. This is, it's too much. It's too hard. We don't have the ability to push back the pride that is so apparent in all of our lives and in our hearts and we don't have the ability to forgive apart from you but God we believe as your word says that you are at work in us that Christ in us is the hope of glory that as we have been raised with Christ we have been empowered through your spirit to love like this and so God would you compel us? Would you challenge us? Would you charge us to do that more and more? All for the sake of your name and your renown. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.